Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. For the past several months, the U.S. has faced one natural disaster after another. Tonight, the disaster in Texas in the wake of Hurricane Harvey is deepening. Houston is a city in crisis and now a city of islands. Tonight, in the wake of Hurricane Maria, parts of Puerto Rico are desperate. Residents forced to wade through waist-high water to safety. Heat and drought have combined to make this one of the worst fire seasons. And here in Washington state, more than 330,000 acres have burned so far this year. After the disaster, these communities face a long road to recovery. So how can our government best respond to these disasters? And once these harrowing images have been pushed out of the headlines, what can we do to prepare for future events? For answers to these difficult questions, we turn to Carlos Martin, a senior fellow in the Urban Institute's Metropolitan Housing and Community Center. Carlos is a trained architect and civil engineer who's worked for years on the built environment and disaster response policy. So Carlos, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so before we dive into the broader conversation, I thought we'd start with a foundational question. What do we mean when we say disaster? So people often assume that a hurricane or an earthquake, those are disasters. But re in the reality, those are just hazards. Mm -hmm. A hazard is the actual ac the thing that's occurring, the hurricane, the storm, the earthquake, uh, cyber attack. So whatever the external shock is, um, the effect of it is what the disaster is. Like when people say, oh, this was a disaster, it's because it actually had an impact. So the impact is the disaster. The disaster is on the people in a given area, in a community, in a uh, location and and that's what comprises the disaster. That's exactly right. And it could be just not people. It could also be an environmental, um, an ecosystem that could also have an effect. So it's not just the, mostly we think about the people. Got it. Okay. And the so the U.S. has just gone through a period in which it seems like there's been an extraordinary number of disasters by that definition, from hurricanes to mass shooting events and other situations. Are we crazy? Are there more disasters today than ever before? Or are we just more aware of them? Um, you're not crazy. There are more. And there are more for a variety of reasons. One being that we're more populous and we have more economic productivity. So the impact side of the disaster is clearly higher. There also are more incidences, more events. There are, particularly on the meteorological side, there are increased numbers of hurricanes, of severe storms. And this is entirely due to, um, uh, or at least largely due to climate change the effects of climate change. There are also, the things that we consider disasters are also what are federally called declarations, right? So there's a, an increasing trend for people to declare a disaster, to receive resources from the federal government. And that's been exponential over the last 60 years. If we look just at the history of the county level disaster declarations in this country, going back to 1980, there were only 200 county-level disaster declarations. These are the federal declarations. Um, in 2017, so far, we've had over 1,500. So 200 to 1,500. That's the scale that we're looking at. So you started to touch upon this uh, around the federal role. And I was just wondering if you could spell out what are some of the activities that comprises our national disaster policy? 
typically when people think about disaster policy, they think only about relief and response. So that's, for example, what's happening right now, still in places like Puerto Rico, um, to some extent in Texas and Florida because of Harvey and Irma. In many ways, makes sense for the federal government to be involved because the local community is completely down. They don't have the capacity, the bandwidth, et cetera, to be able to deal with uh, it, its immediate issues. So after the relief and response stage of support, what comes next? That's when we venture into recovery, longer-term recovery. We get, want to get people back into their, their original housing, rebuild the housing that uh, may have been destroyed, build new housing for people that had uh, no other options, think about other relocation opportunities, et cetera. So it's really thinking through the longer-term community recovery work that is tied with general community planning. It's, that's where the, the intersection of long-term community planning and disaster management happens. Are we getting better at disaster response? We are. There is a much better coordination. A lot of the work that ha has involved uh, massive investments of technology to inform people to do alert systems, to let people know where to go. We're doing a lot better at the federal side of that in coordination with state and local communities. What we're not doing a very good job is, is everything before. That is the mitigation and the preparedness. That is tied with general community planning. It's, that's where the, the intersection of long-term community planning and disaster management happens. So many of us have a sense of what disaster response looks like based on images that we've seen from post-Katrina sort of support and what's been happening in Texas and in Puerto Rico afterwards. But I'd be curious on your take about what we should be doing before some of these storms and these disasters strike. What does our prevention uh, strategy look like? What sort of investments are we making in, in making sure that these disasters aren't as impactful as they have been? You're absolutely right. We think of the cavalry coming in and saving us when we think about emergencies when what we really should be doing is thinking about, well, does the cavalry have a horse to come in? <laughs> and what can we do to make sure that the disaster didn't occur to begin with? So there are what we call mitigation and preparedness strategies. So preparedness is really making sure the, 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 ca the cavalry has their horse, right? That we know where to evacuate, that there are shelter facilities, et cetera. Mitigation is where I think we falter the most in this country. That is having defensive infrastructure, having um, insurance, having uh, for, uh, for private property, having uh, building codes that can withstand the types of uh, future events that we anticipate. All of these things that are more, more future thinking about the next disaster, we tend to fund those only after a disaster has occurred because all our focus and all our attention is on there. And the federal government, that's when the funds come out for mitigation strategies. But if you look at the scale of how much we invest in mitigation compared to the $9 billion a year average that we spend in relief and response, it's a 16th, let me repeat, 16th of that is what we spend on mitigation. And that's really where we would reap tons of benefit from a much smaller investment. So we're spending just a fraction of the, the dollars that we spend once the disaster is hit and it's had a terrible impact, we're spending just a fraction of that on thinking about what we can do to prevent that. Part of me understands that because it's the sense of how do you prepare for everything, for all the disasters that might strike? And part of me says, that's crazy. We should really be thinking about what are all of those pieces that we can do, the practical things, steps that we can take to prevent this. 
Where is the balance there? So there are scientific studies that show the type, the likelihood of the kinds of risks that you're going to be exposed to. Most people aren't aware of their personal property risks. Um, most communities, uh, several communities, are in denial of their risks. For example, there are whole communities that still are denying climate change and its effects um, on their communities, and so they don't want to deal with those specific. Um, likely, the likelihood of those specific risks. So natural question, why don't we do that? Deeper seated issues that I think are behavioral psych and psychological in terms of who we are as Americans and not wanting to think about the bad things that have just happened or that may happen in the future. It's a confluence of a lot of other things as well. For example, that we have an aging infrastructure and we're not even investing in that, let alone infrastructure that is meant to address future risks, and, and a decrease in uh, the attention to the safety net um, so that we're not paying attention to the most vulnerable uh, communities that need to um, have special consideration when we're thinking about the future. Thinking about disasters and where they hit, I'm, my impression is that there especially impactful for communities that are, are more vulnerable, have more impoverished um, people living there. Is that true? Uh, I would say it definitely is true for those communities. Not The reality is there are more of those communities <laughs> in the country than, um, than not. And those communities not only have fewer resources, the households in those communities have fewer resources. They have less take up of, of uh, insurance. For example, if we look just at Puerto Rico, only 1% of homeowners in Puerto Rico had flood insurance and only half had wind insurance covered in their regular property insurance, homeowners insurance uh, policies. So as individuals, those people are more vulnerable, have fewer assets to recover and fewer sort of mitigation strategies to recover. It's a little disparate depending on the specific kind of emergency. For example, you could look at a place like Miami Beach that is clearly vulnerable to um, sea level rise as well as specific storms, but they're a wealthy community. I like to think I'm not worried, I like to say that I'm not worried about Miami Beach, I'm more worried about Homestead, which is in the same county, further inland, and they're going to be subject to water flooding coming from below because of the porous uh, limestone in Florida, uh, as much as Miami Beach is going to be uh, affected by water coming in. But Miami Beach has the resources and they've invested in huge pumps that just pump the water away when it keeps coming in, whereas Homestead is just going to affect their water quality, the, the water will be salinated, it's going to affect their properties um, and their livelihoods. We've talked a lot about the role of the federal agencies in terms of both disaster mitigation and disaster response, but what's the role and the capacity of local governments in these contexts? Local com communities, especially when it comes to mitigation, are absolutely critical. Land use decisions are made on the local and on the local scale. So their decision making around how communities receive social services before and after disasters, how um, they plan their communities, what sort of literal development occurs and where is all based on local decision making. So I'm particularly concerned with local communities, especially rural counties that don't really have a lot of the bandwidth, the resources, the, uh, the intellectual capital to be able then to tie into what's going on globally in terms of the latest cutting edge infrastructure, et cetera. So in the aftermath of some of these disasters, where are there opportunities in the recovery process? 
There are so many opportunities, and that's why historically the federal government has invested mitigation funds in the recovery phase rather than before, um, uh, just generally anytime beforehand. We saw in Iowa, um, uh, in many rural communities in, uh, in the Midwest, just rethinking their riverbanks so that they allow for the flooding prone zones to become parks. So that could be used when the flood, uh, rivers aren't flooded over, but then aren't affecting anybody's properties during times of storm. In the past, the, the, I think the biggest lesson that we learned from Sandy is how can we really take advantage of these opportunities um, that aren't just rebuilding what we already built before. Sandy was the prime example of showing through the Rebuild by Design competition that was held in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. Okay, Carlos, let me ask you the magic wand question. So you are suddenly in charge of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. What would be the top three things on your agenda? I'd say number one, continue the conversation about reforming flood insurance in this country. That is the biggest issue affecting households, particularly those in coastal communities and flood prone areas. It's also one that we haven't resolved well, and it's an opportunity to have a national conversation about insurance for any kind of future hazard um, in beyond flood. Um, and the second I would say is having a, the awkward and difficult conversation around relocation and which communities, in which communities we should no longer be developing and which should be redeveloped to allow movement of whole families, et cetera, that will, uh, won't be in harm's way in the future. Third, I would say a risk and awareness uh, education campaign for policymakers. This includes uh, really having folks understand the realities of climate change in their communities, realities of any kind of other natural hazard or social hazard that may be occurring, and how they need to transform their city departments, their state government agencies, and focus around the long-term risks that their communities are gonna face. Those are great tips. I hope that our future FEMA leaders take those seriously. So thanks so much for joining me today. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Clearly, the balance between disaster response and disaster preparation will continue to be an important area of policy debate in the coming years. As always, let's close with three takeaways from the episode. One, we've seen more disasters in the past few decades because of climate change and development and because more events have been formally declared disasters to qualify for federal support. Two, insurance and infrastructure policies are important levers in disaster preparedness and mitigation, but these measures require planning, funding, and political will that can be difficult to summon before a disaster strikes. And three, local communities are critical in disaster mitigation because they make decisions about land use and community services but there's a limit to what they can do on their own without additional federal help. So that's our show. Thanks again to Carlos Martin. You can learn more about his research on our podcast landing page, www.urban.org slash critical value. Big thank you to you, our listeners. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your family to download us. And please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes will be dropping every couple of weeks, so stay tuned. Shout out to Yafon Powers, who produced this episode, and thanks to Vicki Gann for all her help. 
Matt Johnson was our amazing editor. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner, signing out. <laughs>